0: All right, good morning, church. Uh, This, uh, yeah, as Tom said, this morning we'll be in Isaiah chapter 11, and we're going to be talking about the promised peacemaker. That uh, last week we looked uh, in the book of Isaiah and we saw that uh, Jesus is, in fact, the promised king and that he is not only uh, the king, but he is a king full full of perfect justice and righteousness as the perfect peacemaker. And so this morning uh, we start off in Isaiah chapter 11, and in verse 1 uh, we, we see this proud declaration. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, to understand this text, we have to understand the context for Isaiah chapter 11, that in Isaiah chapter 10, we had just seen a very different picture painted. In Isaiah chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, we see this picture of God bringing low the proud. It says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lock the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be honed down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So right before this passage uh, in Isaiah 11, where we're at today, right before he speaks of the stump of Jesse, we see this picture of all of the kingdoms that oppose God and those who stand in opposition to him being brought down. And it's a very personal picture. As it says, and they will be holed down, they will be brought low. He will cut the thickets of the forest with an axe. And yet in 11, we see... The great promise of God that in the midst of these dead stumps, something spectacular shall come forth. A branch from the stump of Jesse is what scripture tells us here in 11.1 is what Isaiah declares. Jesse was the father of David. And so he's saying from this stump that is the line of David, there shall be this magnificent promise fulfilled. You see, God had made a promise to David that his kingdom would be forever. And this morning I'm going, to, I'm going to share a lot of passages and how they point to this promise. And one of those in regards to David comes from 2 Samuel 7. And it says this starting in verse 8. Now this is God speaking through Nathan to David, making this promise. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And then a little while farther down in 16, God makes this declarative statement, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever now, this is not 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 specifically david's throne but that from david's throne from david's line there would come one who would be the perfect king that there would be a better david that would come through his line and his rule you see david wasn't nobody nobody would have imagined this young shepherd would be the one who would be king This young shepherd from Bethlehem, nonetheless. Yet the Lord had a purpose for David. The Lord was not part of David's story, but like you and I, David was part of God's story. And David was very aware of this, he knew this. And in verse 18, we see this I think this is significant. Um, and, and, and applicable to what we should desire of our own, our own hearts. This is David's response to God's promise to him, starting in verse 18. Then King David went in, and he sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. David's response to this promise is, who who am I? That I could be a part of that through my line, that there might be something so magnificent that has to do with me. And then he acknowledges, you know me. Like David was very aware of his brokenness, of what it broke, not only the humble vessel he was to begin with, but then the corrupt vessel that he, that he ultimately was. So David struggled mightily and had, had many shortcomings. And he says, you, you know who I am. He acknowledges, like, how can this be when you know who I am? And this is an important word for us as God's people, because we're all guilty of grave trespass. And when we're guilty of grave trespass as a Christian, we have we we tend to respond in one of two ways. Either like those are early like Adam and Eve, we either cover up and hide from God and seek to go about business as usual, hoping that we won't have to deal with it. Or, like David, we repent and are in and, and serve abundantly and in in all of God's grace. Like David, the the, the the sin that David had been guilty of, the shortcomings of David, did not cause him to hide and run from God. But the magnificence of the grace that he had been shown fueled his service, that he reoriented his life, that he, he stood in all the grace of God who forgiven him. And in his faithfulness, like Jesus came from the line of David. And here in this tip verse, in verse 1, this picture of a stump, is symbolic of the fact that David's royal authority had laid dormant for roughly 600 years. At this point, he was it was the the Davidic line looked like a dead stump in the middle of the forest. But out of this stump, Isaiah says a new sprout has sprung forth, and that we see this sprout described in the in uh, verse two, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It tells us the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that out of the midst of this dead stump there shall spout out of that a branch, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is a significant term. It's used by Isaiah in both 42.1 and 61.1 as well. It tells us this: this branch. It's not a fluke. This isn't a fluke seedling. This isn't a seed that just randomly ended up in this stump, and then tomorrow, when the wind gets hard, will blow away. But this, the, 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 the spirit of the Father would rest upon him. And upon an initial reading of that verse, we have to we have to find it somewhat peculiar: the the wording of Isaiah. Why did the prophet say that the spirit of the Lord would rest upon him? Firstly, this is because this is what God chose to say as God speaks through the prophet. Yet, the reason for this description is because Jesus would be both, this sprout would be both fully God and fully man. Using theological terms, we call this hypothetic union. This, that the Christ, he, would, his, he is fully divine, and yet and he, by nature is God, and yet this nature would be meshed with, that he would also become fully man. The Puritan John Owen once described this. He explained this relation of Christ's two natures in a way that was and continues to be helpful. He explained that the only singular immediate act of the Son of God, that being the second person of the Trinity, On the human nature of Christ was the decision to take it into subsistence. That's that's where that term hypostatic comes from. Hypostasis with himself in the incarnation. That Christ, that God himself, the second member of the Trinity, chose to come to earth to step in to put on flesh. But every other act of the man Jesus on the earth was supported by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit who the angel told Mary would come upon her and place the incarnate God in her womb was the spirit on which Christ would humble himself to depend on and to call on to and to be supported by. And this is a sermon for another day. But Jesus... Depended on the Spirit. He called out to the Spirit. And the Spirit is described here in this text as a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Our Messiah was and is divinely wise, his ways are perfect and magnificent. It should be no surprise that we don't understand his ways. For we may seek wisdom, but Scripture tells us that he is wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of him you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That Jesus, his ways are not our ways. And so we submit, we lay down our, our foolishness in light of his perfect wisdom. He's the spirit of counsel and might, this text says. Our Messiah is the great and perfect counselor. He is not only mighty and the very manifestation of wisdom, but he sympathizes, sympathizes with us as he would come and experience our plight himself out of his love for us. When we struggle with his disciplines, when we question his providence, and when we turn to him with our groanings, we can trust that perfect wisdom is not void of perfect understanding. That any you know, the, the the struggles of this world that we experience and that we walk in, we're not alone in that. That Christ has stepped in, he has endured such things. When we talk about that term hypostatic union, like there's two big implications of that. He became, he was unlike us that he might atone for us, that he was able to atone for our shortcomings, that when we walk through these same things, we will not do so perfectly because we are not God. But yet him being God, he was able to, he being perfectly righteous, he did not, he did not struggle. It was the way that we do. He did not fall short in the, same, to the to the degree. When I say he didn't struggle, I mean that his struggle was perfect. And that even in his struggle, sin did not take place. There was not, that the, 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 the trials that he would face would not lead him to sin. He lived perfectly so that he, 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 him being unlike us, was he, he was the perfect lamb. He was the perfect sacrifice so that be, that his righteousness might be bestowed on us and that we might be heirs to the kingdom of God. He was unlike us that he might atone for us, but he was like us and that he might sympathize with us. That when we go to the Savior, when we look at our promised Messiah, when we appeal to him, he is not unfamiliar with our struggles and our shortcomings. And we see that the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord Is described here. To live in the fear of the Lord seems like and is perceived as an outdated concept. The world is not fond of this idea. All may be whoever they wish, and anyone who judges us is holding us back, and thus we should judge them. That is the way that the world tends to perceive. Yet the New Testament calls us on multiple occasions, including 1 Peter 2, which we preached, which we went through a couple months back, calls us to live in fear of the Lord, to fear God. There is no conflict in the call to both love and fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is to trust him, to deny ourselves an acknowledgement of his abundance. Living in fear of the Lord is a positive concept which refers to the proper response one should feel towards the all-powerful, almighty, perfectly holy God. In verse 3, we see how the Lord (laughs) exhibited such. In verse 3, starting verse 3 through verse 5, it says this, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see, Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. In describing Christ. In describing this perfect branch says that his delight should be in the fear of the Lord. That that the fear of the Lord cannot be a a bad thing or something to run from, for the Savior himself delights in such things. For Jesus, there was no greater pleasure than to glorify the Father. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus explains this in a peculiar way. He says, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work that Jesus describes fulfilling, the glorifying the Father through obedience to Him, through taking, going forward in the mission of the Father, was what drove Him. He calls it, my food is to do the will of Him. And so that leads us to ask the question, what is the will of the Lord? What is His desire for His people? Especially uh, in this season of Advent, as we await, what is it that we await? And in the theme of Christmas... I would consider you to consider the very Song of the Angels as a response to that question. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. God desires both his glory and our good. Thus he sent the promised peacemaker who would accomplish both, that in the city of David, in the city of the one to whom this would promise, there would be born one who would glorify the Lord, who who, who obedience to the Father, fulfilling the, the mission of the Father, would be like food to him, but he would also bring forth true peace for mankind. The righteous ruler to come will administer justice to his people. Here in this text we just read, it I mean, says even to the needy, even to those who were not thought of, who were low, who were often overlooked, and who uh, Davidic kings had continuously overlooked, especially in the day of Isaiah. For And it says he, he won't be dependent. He won't be dependent on what is seen or is heard. But from perfect righteousness, he will shell out both grace and judgment. Those who are in him are welcomed into the kingdom for which we have no credentials. Perfect grace, like grace that we can, that abounds, that we cannot even comprehend. Like Christ will come, this perfect peacemaker will make a way for those who have no credentials other than Christ himself. And for those who oppose him, it says he will strike them down with the breath of his lips. That God, the perfect peacemaker will come bringing perfect peace, perfect grace, abounding love for those who are His, and perfect justice for those who stand in opposition to Him. And this text shows us that righteousness and faithfulness are so characteristic of who He is that verse 5 tells us righteousness shall be the belt of His waist and faithfulness the belt of His loins. That there'll be so such a significant aspect of who he is that they're like a belt wrapped around him, his grace and justice flow through all that he does. and in, in, in implications of this in verse six through nine, we'll read the rest and we'll, we'll read uh, we'll just see this story of how this transcends even beyond humanity. <clears throat> the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall raise. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." The wolf shall lay down with the lamb. When the promised peacemaker comes, not only will humanity be transformed by his righteous rule, but scripture here, that, but Isaiah tells us that all of nature will be transformed. No longer will there be predators amongst the animals. And while this is here in Isaiah, we also see this this call in a similar way in the New Testament. Romans eight nineteen through 22. Hear this with me. That, once, that upon the perfect peacemaker's return, there's going to be a, not only a, a change in those who are his, obviously, in the way that life goes for us, but ultimately all of the world, all of creation will be transformed. And it says a little child will lead them. Not only will the way animals relate to one another be changed, but here it says that the way that they relate to human beings will change. The way that we relate with that which is created will change. A little child may be able to lead a bear around in that day, or even play with a cobra. Okay, like we—that one's going to take me a little longer to like embrace. Like that one, that one seems a little more far-fetched for me to get. Like snakes really freak me out. But this will be so. Like there will that 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 tension, that conflict, will no longer be even amongst God's creation. In Genesis nine, verses two through three. The Lord gave Noah and all mankind after him permission to eat meat. At the same time, it says in, uh, in Genesis chapter 9 that the Lord put dread in the animals, dread of mankind, so that they wouldn't no longer be effortless prey for humans. If you ever, if you ever go hunting, you understand. Like this is a, There is a, uh, a tension there. That animals that the animals of the forest hide from and there is a, a dread within them of man and we see that God put that there. But when the promised peacemaker comes, scripture tells us that even this will be reversed. Creation will groan no more. You know, like, why, why is it so special? Why do we have petting zoos? Like, why is that? I'm not a huge petting zoo guy, but when I go, whenever I've taken my kids to one, all of a sudden I kind of get it. Like, there's something special about an animal uh, being in an environment, uh, an animal that would typically run from a human eating out of your hand. Like, that. I have to imagine like if an alien uh, civilization were to look at Earth, they would find this practice peculiar that we'll go and spend five bucks and get walking filth so that an animal can eat food out of our hand. But there's something significant about an animal where there's this natural hostility being willing to do that. Or this last week I saw a YouTube video that had like, you know, a million likes or whatever. And it was of this baby and this lion kind of like playing back and forth with one another. Uh, but there was this glass in between them at the zoo. So like the baby's standing at the glass, you know, hitting the glass and the lion, you know, is kind of trying to play with him. But that's what, what, what draws us to that kind of thing. What makes that significant is so that there's something in us that I think knows one day, like that, that's how it should be. That the hostility, the tension that even nature exhibits is not from the perfect, is not from the garden, but is from Mm post-garden. This will be true because as scripture says here, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. The knowledge of the Lord will go forth, not just in an intellectual sense. Well, that is certainly part of it. But the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth in a relational sense. The tension, the, the tensions, not only amongst humans but amongst nature, will be no more. The promised peacemaker will renew his creation and his children, making all things new. And verse 10 says, "In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." Though our brothers and sisters, like not only will uh, humans be restored to humanity, but as brothers and sisters in Christ who have been scattered to the ends of the earth, Jesus will be the banner that unites us together. That we will no longer be divided by what country or allegiance or flag that we hold to, what governmental system we think is best, but Jesus will be the banner. This, This branch from the stump of Jesse will be the banner, will exhibit the kingdom, will be where we rally and pledge our allegiance. But only, and then only because his initial earthly resting place was not near as glorious as the one that's spoken of here. It says his resting place shall be glorious, but we shall take part in such a resting place because of the inglorious resting place that he chose here on earth first, which we acknowledge here during this Christmas season. As we close today, I just want to connect this back for a moment, maybe connect this forward. I want to close today by looking at Matthew chapter 3. Just a a short part, just here, verses 1 through 3. It says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The promised peacemaker is the one whom John declared was coming. Charles Spurgeon, in regards to John the Baptist, says, Men's hearts were like a wilderness wherein there is no way. But as loyal subjects throw up roads for the approach of beloved princes so were men to welcome the Lord with their hearts made right and ready to receive him. John the Baptist was born for this purpose, to announce the way of the Lord, that even Isaiah spoke of John the Baptist, declared that he would come and that he would do these things, that John the Baptist had not only a specific role, but a specific message to give to the earth. And his message, his announcement to the world is significant and peculiar. For he doesn't come merely, here in this text in Matthew, he doesn't merely say, repent and change your ways. But John's message is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent because the promised peacemaker full of grace and justice is coming. His call to repent is not unique. Repent is a theme of scripture. But within God's word, we see this this term multiple times. John the Baptist, This first word of John the Baptist, what you see, speaking this here in Matthew 3, 1 and 2. Repent was the first word, like as Jesus declared the gospel in Matthew 4, 17 and Mark 1, 14. Jesus uses this exact terminology. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent was the first word in the preaching ministry of the twelve disciples in Mark 6, 12. Repent was the first word in the preaching instructions Jesus came to, gave to the disciples post-resurrection in Luke 24. Repent was the first word of exhortation in the first Christian sermon, Acts 2, 38. And repent was the first word in the mouth of the apostle through his ministry, Acts 26, 19, and 20. John's message to the world is to repent but not to repent for the sake of just repenting but repent for the kingdom of God is at hand like and so his his call to repentance like his challenging the world to repentance it's not just to be sad about the things I've done but he's calling them to action preparation the kingdom of God is at hand the perfect peacemaker and that is here and he's coming again so Live accordingly. He's preparing them for something magnificent. This isn't about feeling bad for the the things you've done, but it's a call to change direction because the kingdom of God is at hand. The promised peacemaker had come, and he will come again and make all things new. And so this morning, Christian, our, my challenge to you, my challenge to myself, would we repent? Turn face, reorient our lives. Because the promised peacemaker is coming. This isn't just some, some far off I- idea. Like, no. The time is at hand. The promised peacemaker is coming. We will stand before him. Will we reorient our lives for as much? Because the the kingdom of God is surely at hand. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your goodness, your grace to us. Lord, you are abundant in graciousness. Lord, how is it that, uh, that we might have access to you, that the kingdom might be a place for us? Lord, we struggle to fathom these things. Lord, if we're honest, sometimes these things struggle to feel real in the midst of uh, of just all that, uh, all that we carry in this broken world. Holy Spirit, as Christ himself uh, called upon you, how much more are we in need of you? Holy Spirit, help us to see what is true. Help us to see beyond earthly things. Help us to see beyond that which is in front of us. And would we, would we live repentant lives? acknowledging that the kingdom of god is at hand lord your kingdom is at hand you came all of humanity testifies to the truth all of humanity whether they do so in word or or not is a testament to the truth that you came lord everything changed everything about our our world our calendar our rhythms everything changed because you came we know we know you came but yet lord somehow we can we can question or lose sight of the truth that you're coming and that when you're coming, you'll, you'll make all things new. You'll come as the perfect peacemaker. God, would we live lives in anticipation of that day? Would we turn from things that are not of the kingdom now? Would we live as a, a reflection of those who await uh, you, are our great hope? And would you make this so in us, Holy Spirit? Turn our gaze to you through this season Lord each day that passes by we will surely become more and more busy with all uh, that the world would have us be distracted by in this season but God would you would you use even even these things uh, to just remind us of, of, of yourself would it build up in us uh, anticipation of your coming and would we uh, just just make change our lives accordingly I ask these things in your good name. Amen.